This is chapter five of A Thousand Splendid Sons. I know what I want, Miriam said to Jaleel. It was the spring of 1974, the year Miriam turned 15. The three of them were sitting outside the culpa in a patch of shade thrown by the willows on folding chairs arranged in a triangle. For my birthday, I know what I want. You do, said Jaleel, smiling encouragingly. Two weeks before, at Miriam's prodding, Jaleel had let on that an American film was playing at a cinema. It was a special kind of film, what he called a cartoon. The entire film was a series of drawings, he said, thousands of them, so that when they were made into a film and projected onto a screen, you had the illusion that the drawings were moving. Jaleel said that the film told the story of an old, childless toy maker who's lonely and desperately wants a son. So he carves a puppet, a boy who magically comes to life. Miriam had asked him to tell her more, and Jaleel said that the old man and his puppet had all sorts of adventures, that there was a place called Pleasure Island, and bad boys who turned into donkeys. They even got swallowed by a whale at the end, the puppet and his father. Miriam had told Melifazilla all about this film. I want you to take me to your cinema, Miriam said now. I want to see the cartoon. I want to see the puppet boy. With this, Miriam sensed a shift in the atmosphere. Her parents stirred in their seats. Miriam could feel them exchanging looks. That's not a good idea, said Nana. Her voice was calm, had the controlled, polite tone she used around Jaleel, but Miriam could feel her hard, accusing glare. Jaleel shifted on his chair. He coughed, cleared his throat. You know, he said, the picture quality isn't that good. Neither is the sound. And the projector's been malfunctioning recently. Maybe your mother's right. Maybe you can think of another present, Miriam Joe. Anne, Nana said. You see, your father agrees. But later at the stream, Miriam said, take me. I'll tell you what, Jaleel said. I'll send someone to pick you up and take you. I'll make sure they get you a good seat and all the candy you want. Nay, I want you to take me, Miriam Joe. And I want you to invite my brothers and sisters, too. I want to meet them. I want us all to go, together. It's what I want. Jaleel sighed. He was looking away toward the mountains. Miriam remembered him telling her that on the screen, a human face looked as big as a house, that when a car crashed up there, you felt the metal twisting in your bones. She pictured herself sitting in the private balcony seats, lapping at ice cream alongside her siblings and Jaleel. It's what I want, she said. Jaleel looked at her with a forlorn expression. Tomorrow, at noon, I'll meet you at this very spot, all right? Tomorrow. Come here, he said. He hunkered down, pulled her to him, and held her for a long, long time. At first, Nana paced around the colba, clenching and unclenching her fists. Of all the daughters I could have had, why did God give me an ungrateful one like you? Everything I endured for you. How dare you? How dare you abandon me like this, you treacherous little Harami? Then she mocked. What a stupid girl you are. You think you matter to him? That you're wanted in his house? You think you're a daughter to him? That he's going to take you in? Let me tell you something. A man's heart is a wretched, wretched thing, Miriam. It isn't like a mother's womb. It won't bleed. It won't stretch to make room for you. I'm the only one who loves you. I'm all you have in this world, Miriam. And when I'm gone, you'll have nothing. You'll have nothing. You are nothing. Then she tried guilt. I'll die if you go. The gin will come, and I'll have one of my fits. You'll see. I'll swallow my tongue and die. Don't leave me, Miriam Joe. Please stay. I'll die if you go. Miriam said nothing. You know I love you, Miriam Joe. Miriam said she was going for a walk. She feared she might say hurtful things if she stayed, that she knew the gin was a lie, that Jaleel had told her that what Nana had was a disease with a name and that pills could make it better. 
She might have asked Nana why she refused to see Jaleel's doctors, as he had insisted she do. Why she wouldn't take the pills he'd bought for her. If she could articulate it, she might have said to Nana that she was tired of being an instrument, of being lied to, laid claim to, used. That she was sick of Nana twisting the truths of her life and making her, Miriam, another of her grievances against the world. You're afraid, Nana, she might have said. You're afraid that I might find the happiness you never had, and you don't want me to be happy. You don't want a good life for me. You're the one with the wretched heart. There was a lookout on the edge of the clearing where Miriam liked to go. She sat there now, on dry, warm grass. Her rot was visible from here, spread below her like a child's board game. The women's garden to the north of the city, Sharsuk Bazaar, and the ruins of Alexander the Great's old citadel to the south. She could make out the minarets in the distance, like the dusty fingers of giants, and the streets that she imagined were milling with people, carts, mules. She saw swallows swooping and circling overhead. She was envious of these birds. They had been to Herat. They had flown over its mosques and its bazaars. Maybe they had landed on the walls of Jalil's home, on the front steps of his cinema. She picked up ten pebbles and arranged them vertically in three columns. This was a game that she played privately from time to time when Nana wasn't looking. She put four pebbles in the first column for Kadiha's children, three for Afsun's, and three in the third column for Nargis's children. Then she added a fourth column, a solitary eleventh pebble. The next morning, Miriam wore a cream-colored dress that had fell to her knees, cotton trousers, and a green hijab over her head. She agonized a bit over the hijab, its being green and not matching the dress. But it would have to do. Moths had eaten holes into her white one. She checked the clock. It was an old, hand-wound clock with black numbers on a mint green face, a present from Mullah It was nine o'clock. She wondered where Nana was. She thought about going outside and looking for her, but she dreaded the confrontation, the aggrieved looks. Nana would accuse her of betrayal. She would mock her for her mistaken ambitions. Miriam sat down. She tried to make time pass by drawing an elephant in one stroke, the way Jaleel had shown her, over and over. She became stiff from all the sitting, but wouldn't lie down for fear that her dress would wrinkle. When the hands finally showed 11.30, Miriam pocketed the 11 pebbles and went outside. On her way to the stream, she saw Nana sitting on in a chair in the shade, beneath the doomed roof of a weeping willow. Miriam couldn't tell whether Nana saw her or not. At the stream, Miriam waited by the spot they had agreed on the day before. In the sky, a few gray cauliflower-shaped clouds drifted by, and Jaleel had taught her that gray clouds got their color by being so dense that their top parts absorbed the sunlight and cast their shadow along the base. That's what you see, Miriam Joe, he said, the dark in their underbelly. Some time passed. Miriam went back to the Kolba. This time, she walked around the west-facing periphery of the clearing so she wouldn't have to pass by Nana. She checked the clock. It was almost one o'clock. He's a businessman, Miriam thought. Something has come up. She went back to the stream and waited a while longer. Black birds circled overhead, dipped into the grass somewhere. She watched a caterpillar inching along the foot of an immature thistle. She waited until her legs were stiff. This time, she did not go back to the Kolba. She rolled up the legs of her trousers to the knees, crossed the stream, and for the first time in her life, headed down the hill for Herat. Nana was wrong about Herat, too. No one pointed. No one laughed. Miriam walked along noisy, crowded, cypress-lined boulevards amid a steady steam of pedestrians, bicycle riders, and mule-drawn garries. And no one threw a rock at her. No one called her a harami. 
Hardly anyone even looked at her. She was unexpectedly, marvelously, an ordinary person here. For a while, Miriam stood by an oval-shaped pole in the center of a big park where pebble paths crisscrossed. With wonder, she ran her fingers over the beautiful marble horses that stood along the edge of the pool and gazed down at the water with opaque eyes. She spied on a cluster of boys who were setting sail to paper ships. Miriam saw flowers everywhere, tulips, lilies, petunias, their petals awash in sunlight. People walked along the path, sat on benches, and sipped tea. Miriam could hardly believe she was here. Her heart was battering with excitement. She wished Malefazola could see her now. How daring he would find her. How brave. She gave herself over to the new life that awaited her in this city. A life with a father, with sisters and brothers. A life in which she would love and be loved back. Without reservation or agenda. Without shame. Sprightly, she walked back to the wide thoroughfare near the park. She passed old vendors with the leathery faces sitting under the shade of plain trees, gazing at her impassively behind pyramids of cherries and mounds of grapes. Barefoot boys gave chase to cars and buses, waving bags of quinces. Miriam stood at a street corner and watched the passerby, unable to understand how they would be so indifferent to the marvels around them. After a while, she worked up to the nerve to ask elderly owner of a horse-drawn gary if he knew where jaleel the cinema's owner lived the old man had plump cheeks and wore a rainbow striped chapon you're not from harat are you he said companionably everyone knows where jaleel khan lives can you point me he opened a foil wrapped toffee and said are you alone yes climb on i'll take you i can't pay you i don't have any money he gave her the toffee he said he hadn't had a ride in two hours and was planning on going home anyway Jaleel's house was on the way. Miriam climbed onto the gary. They stood in silence, side by side. On the way there, Miriam saw herb shops and open-fronted <laughs> cubby holes where shoppers bought oranges and pears, books, shawls, even falcons. Children played marbles in circles drawn in dust. Outside tea houses on carpet-covered wooden platforms. Men drank tea and smoked tobacco from hookahs. The old man turned onto a wide conifer-lined street. He brought his horse to a stop in the midway point. There. Looks like you're in luck. Taka Joe, that's his car. Miriam hopped down. He smiled and rode on. Miriam had never before touched a car. She ran her fingers along the hood of Jaleel's car, which was black, shiny, with glittering wheels in which Miriam saw a flattened, widened version of herself. The seats were made of white leather. Behind the steering wheel, Miriam saw round glass panels with needles behind them. For a moment, Miriam heard Nana's voice in her head, mocking, dousing the deep-seated glow of her hopes. With shaky legs, Miriam approached the door to the house. She put her hands on the walls. They were so tall, so foreboding, to those walls. She had to crane her neck to see where the top of citrus trees protruded over them from the other side. The treetops swayed in the breeze, and she imagined they were nodding their welcoming to her. Miriam studied herself against the waves of dismay passing through her. A barefoot young woman opened the door. She had a tattoo under her lower lip. I'm here to see Jaleel Khan. I'm Miriam, his daughter. A look of confusion crossed the girl's face. Then, a flash of recognition. There was a faint smile on her lips now, and an air of eagerness about her, in anticipation. Wait here, the girl said quickly. She closed the door. A few minutes passed, then a man opened the door. He was tall and square-shouldered with sleepy-looking eyes and a calm face. I'm Jaleel Khan's chauffeur, he said, not unkindly. His what? His driver. Jaleel Khan is not here. I see his car, Miriam said. 
He's away on urgent business. When will he be back? He didn't say. Miriam said she would wait. He closed the gates. Miriam sat and drew her knees to her chest. It was early evening already, and she was getting hungry. She ate the Gary driver's toffee. A while later, the driver came out again. You need to go home now, he said. It'll be dark in less than an hour. I'm used to the dark. It'll get cold, too. Why don't you let me drive you home? I'll tell him you were here. Miriam only looked at him. I'll take you to a hotel, then. You can sleep comfortably there. We'll see what we can do in the morning. Let me in the house. I've been instructed not to. Look, no one knows when he's coming back. It could be days. Miriam crossed her arms. The driver sighed and looked at her with a gentle reproach. Over the years, Miriam would have ample occasion to think about how things might have turned out if she had let the driver take her back to the Kolba, but she didn't. She spent the night outside Jaleel's house. She watched the sky darken, the shadows engulf the neighboring house fronts. The tattooed girl brought her some bread and a plate of rice, which Miriam said she didn't want. The girl left it near Miriam. From time to time, Miriam heard footsteps down the street, doors swinging open, muffled greetings, electric lights came on, and the windows glowed dimly. Dogs barked. When she could no longer resist the hunger, Miriam ate a plate of rice and the bread. Then she listened to the crickets chirping from gardens overhead. Clouds slid past a pale moon. In the morning, she was shaken awake. Miriam saw that during the night, someone had covered her with a blanket. It was the driver shaking her shoulder. This is enough. You've made a scene. Boss, it's time to go. Miriam sat up and rubbed her eyes. Her back and neck were sore. I'm going to wait for him. Look at me, he said. Jalil Khan says that I need to take you back right now. Right now. Do you understand? Jalil Khan says so. He opened the rear passenger door to the car. Bia, come on, he said softly. I want to see him, Miriam said. Her eyes were tearing over. The driver sighed. Let me take you home. Come on. Miriam stood up and walked toward him, but then, at the last moment, she changed direction and ran to the front gates. She felt the driver's fingers fumbling for a grip at her shoulder. She shed him and burst through the open gates. In the handful of seconds that she was in Jaleel's garden, Miriam's eyes registered seeing a gleaming glass structure with plants inside it, grapevines clinging to the wooden trestles, a fish pond built with gray blocks of stone, fruit trees, and bushes of brightly colored flowers everywhere. Her gaze skimmed over all of these things before they found a face, across the garden, in an upstairs window. The face was there only for an instant, a flash, but long enough. Long enough for Miriam to see the eyes widen, the mouth open, then it snapped away from view. A hand appeared and frantically pulled at a cord. The curtains fell shut. Then a pair of hands buried into her armpits and she was lifted off the ground. Miriam kicked. The pebbles spilled from her pocket. Miriam kept kicking and crying as she was carried to the car and lowered onto the cold leather of the back seat. The driver talked in a muted, consoling tone as he drove. Miriam did not hear him. All during the ride, as she bounced in the back seat, she cried. There were tears of grief, of anger, of disillusionment, but mainly tears of a deep, deep shame of how foolishly she had given herself over to Jaleel, how she had fretted over what dress to wear, over the mismatching hijab, walking all the way here, refusing to leave, sleeping on the street like a stray dog, and she was ashamed of how she had dismissed her mother's stricken looks, her puffy eyes, Nana, who had also warned her, who had been right all along. Miriam kept thinking of his face in the upstairs window. He let her sleep on the street, on the street. Miriam cried, laying down. She didn't sit up. 
She didn't want to be seen. She imagined all of Herat knew this morning how she disgraced herself. She wished Malafazola was there so she could put her head on his lap and let him comfort her. After a while, the road became bumpier and the nose of the car pointed up. They were on the uphill road between Herat and Goldamon. What would she say to Nana, Miriam wondered. How would she apologize? How could she even face Nana now? The car stopped and the driver helped her out. I'll walk you, he said. She let him guide her across the road and up the track. There was a honeysuckle growing along the path and the milkweed too. Bees were buzzing over twinkling wildflowers. The driver took her hand and helped her cross the stream. Then he let her go. He was talking about how Harat's famous 120 days winds would start blowing soon from mid-morning to dusk and how the sand flies would go on a feeding frenzy. And then suddenly he was standing in front of her trying to cover her eyes, pushing her back the way that they had come and saying, go back. No, don't look now. Turn around. Go back. But he wasn't fast enough. Miriam saw. A gust of wind blew and parted the drooping branches of the weeping willow like a curtain, and Miriam caught a glimpse of what was beneath the tree. The straight-backed chair overturned, the rope dropping from a high branch, Nana dangling at the end of it. Okay, so... That was really hard to read at the end of that. Um, it's a really hard chapter. Um, it's really heartbreaking and devastating for Miriam. And this is where the story really begins. Um, this chapter, um, starting with Nana's um, taking her own life. And this is just kind of the beginning of Miriam's character. I mean, not really, but there's some real character development between now and the next few chapters. Um, but we had seen her just being betrayed by her father, the person she had loved the most, and then she loses her mother. So in the next chapter or two, we'll see how she deals with that pain and everything. And But this chapter was really important. It's, um, like I said, the kind of the beginning of the story, really. Uh, it was, it made me really sad. I almost started crying reading it, but I'm, I, I'm, I know it's a really sad part, but it's kind of exciting to get into the story now because now is where a lot of stuff, st it starts to pick up a lot. <laughs> so thank you for listening.